This is Podco Media Networks. It's the Demystifying Data Podcast with Chris Clegg, where we deconstruct the tools and techniques marketers need to make data more actionable. Here's Chris. Hello, welcome. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Demystifying Data. I'm your host, Chris Clegg. And today I've got the part one of a two-part interview with Isaac Simpson. He's the director of content strategy at NVE Experience Agency. He's also writer of a daily culture trends newsletter at The Future Party. Um, And this is really a cool newsletter. You can check out thefutureparty.com. And it's really about the business of entertainment. And it's it's a great daily newsletter our interview was all about influencer marketing. And we talked about, you know, the maturing of the of the market. We talked about how people built agencies to support the influencer marketing world. And they did that based on the demand that their clients were asking for. But, you know, the model and the best way to deliver on this kind of service hasn't yet been fully vetted out. And so you see a lot of different ways in which it's being approached. And Isaac has some great thoughts and comments on how this market is maturing because of that and where it's going. I mean, we cover the tools, how to find the right influencers. We talk about what advertising is doing in this market and how it's how it's changing. We talked about this problem when you're working with an influencer and you truly have authentic in quotes, but that often comes with the influencer just not caring and and how you deal with that or what the, some case studies of that are all about. And then, you know, we just have some great points about how these niche influencer genres, the influencers are kind of influencing each other. And out of that, they're creating these little niche markets, these niche genres of channels that uh, good marketing agencies and smart brands are really learning how to tap into. So it's a fantastic interview. I hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, here is Isaac Simpson. Well, Isaac, thanks so much for being on the podcast. We had talked previously about your work in digital and, and influencers you know, tell us a little bit about the work you do. I've been in the influencer marketing space for about three years, which okay. is actually kind of ancient history as far as that space goes. <laughs> I currently work for a company called The Future Party, and we are part of a larger experiential marketing agency called NVE. We have okay, clients yeah. ranging from Lyft. We just did a thing with Lyft for Sundance to Adidas to Facebook. We've done work for Netflix. We, we have a lot of very large clients. And our specialty in the future party is what we call sort of community-based influencer and media marketing. Okay. And, you know, a lot of these words kind of become gobbledygook after a while, which I totally acknowledge and understand. But on the other hand, the market is so young and so underdeveloped that everybody's kind of toying around with these different words. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what I think they mean. So let me ask you a question there. So you say it's young and underdeveloped. And I, I know it's young. I, I see that totally because we're looking at, what, seven, eight years since the idea even started to come about. But underdeveloped, tell me what aspects you feel like are underdeveloped and what would a mature influencer market look like? Sure. Well, if you look at the marketing world at large, it's a pretty mature market. It's been around in its current form as far as I understand it since the mid 50s. Yeah. And the way that the market, the way that the industry is structured, where you sort of have this divide between creatives, accounts and strategy, the way that it all kind of works in the traditional Uh marketing world, that's been developing for, you know, 
a long time. And that's why the traditional marketing agencies and the traditional advertising agencies are all built in roughly the same way. Makes total sense, yeah. When you look at things like influencer marketing and experiential and what, you know, the word that I've seen to describe sort of the larger category that includes both of those is engagement marketing. I don't know if you come across that, but yeah. those markets, the demand is really high. So I've worked with and in a, a lot of these companies that are satisfying that demand. However, what's really interesting is that each of those companies is built so differently because the demand is there and there is a lot of people satisfying it for influencer marketing, for experiential marketing, those types of sort of new forms. But the sort of uh, optimal way to satisfy that demand has not evolved yet. There's yeah. influencer marketing companies that are built like media sellers. There are influencer marketing companies yeah. that are built like production houses. There are influencer yeah. marketing companies that are built like creative agencies. So they're all going off of the models that they know. Exactly. Ex yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So what's the new model going to look like? How is it going to evolve? It's tough to say, of course. I, I don't yeah. know. We'll learn where everything is headed. I mean, again, you know, part of the reason why it's so underdeveloped is in five seconds, there's going to be no more Instagram likes, right? <laughs> and we're going to see yeah. how that, you know, goes with everything. Google and Facebook are deleting cookies. How is that going to affect things? Because that's going to make the yeah. media buys much cheaper because you're not going to be able to target as, as close. Saying the things that are like fundamental to how an agency would structure a service and differentiate themselves, the nature of the influencer universe the platforms they're working on are still so evolving and the technical details are changing so frequently that it's difficult for an agency to establish a clear, stable model behind it. And so the agencies are exactly. changing as well. Exactly. And you, and you see that right now, not in the influencer space, but in the digital space, which is very closely related to the influencer space. With, again, the announcement that Google is stopping cookies and Facebook is, is going to let you delete your sort of off Facebook activity. Yeah. That's freaking all digital marketers out because they're like, oh, well, now we're not going to be able to charge so much for our products because now you're not going to be able to hyper target on Google and Facebook. And they're not going to be able to charge so much because that the targeting is going to get more general. Does it affect the, the tracking and the proof of service delivery? Or is it about the profiles of who the influencer gets to? Yeah, as far as I understand it, it's the letter that that's why people are kind of freaking out because there's all these media businesses that are built on. So there's a lot of these kind of weird middlemen, third party media businesses that kind of close the loop between your activity on a place like Facebook and then your activity on the rest of the web. And there's also yeah. a lot of them that kind of do the same thing with Google cookies, where there's these kind of third party trackers that are tracking you as you bounce from place to place. So yeah, yeah, a lot of the data that some influencer places use are generated from some of those third party agencies. And if there's going to be limitations on the amount that you can track, which is kind of to make a long story short, sort of what's happening, that's going to affect a lot of digital media businesses that have popped up to do that sort of ad tracking, which is, you know, something we talk about all the time. I mean, we, you know, this is what's happening behind the scenes when you get served that perfect ad about the thing you were just talking about five seconds ago. That's what we're talking. Makes sense. Makes sense. So I guess, I guess what's going to have to happen is they're going to have to go back to 
just traditional understandings of who's influencing who, because you can look at like Mr. Money Mustache, or you could look at like James Charles, and they're influencing a very different population, different age groups, different lifestyle interests. We can assess that by just watching their content and looking at who's engaging their content, but we'll have less ability to prove those conclusions because of what's happening with technology. Sure, in a way. Who is Mr. Money Mustache? <laughs> Mr. Money Mustache. He's worth checking out. He's kind of coming from that uh, your money or your life perspective, or he's looking at, you know, how are we spending money? How do we think about what's needed for retirement? How do we understand and make the conscious choice to remove ourselves from this idea that I need this much in order to retire and I can only retire when I'm 65? And it's an interesting philosophy. And, and then how does one become financially independent far sooner than was otherwise thought possible? Right. Okay. Hmm. There's a little bit of distinction to make here, which is that in the influencer world, there's sort of two ways to do it. On the one way, yeah. the organic, simple, native way, whatever you would call it, is just paying the influencer to hold the stuff in front of their face and make some posts about it and then you're done. Yeah. In that sense, the tracking as it is, is pretty self-reported. So you're not really using that many third parties to track that sort of thing. You definitely are using third parties to find the influencers. Okay. So there's programs like Demographics Pro. There's programs like Creator IQ is a, actually an agency, but I think. And there's programs like Social Rank and things like that that allow you to search for influencers based on DMAs. You can get reports. They have this many female followers over this age, et cetera. There's a lot. Then they're in this location and whatever it is. Okay. So that, yeah. there is a lot of third-party reporting on that stuff. I am not familiar with exactly where that data comes from. I don't know if that's coming from Google cookies or Facebook sort of tracking, or if that's coming from straight up Instagram's API. I think it's coming from Instagram's API, maybe directly. So yeah. I'm not really sure how that works. The part that I'm talking about where the Facebook ads and the Google ads are maybe going to, you know, in Google, yeah. in the influential context, we would really only be talking about YouTube. In that context, there is something that a lot of influencer marketing agencies do, which is they take the content that has been the native post created by the influencer, and then they promote it, or they turn it into an ad, right? And then that ad is served to people based okay. on all these tracking things. Yeah. Because it's based on your interests. So if Facebook tracks you on, around the web, and they find out, oh, look, this person has been bouncing around the web sure. looking for a new car. And then there's a BMW campaign with an influencer who is, you know, a cool creative who's like sitting in front of a BMW. On Instagram, they can then serve you. They'll say, oh, look, this person's bouncing around here. When the agency promotes that influencer's post, that influencer's post can get served to you as an ad. Excellent. There's so many implications to that. Yeah. So that's what a lot of influencer marketing actually is. Do you feel like these services or these ability to find the influencers, is that making smaller influencers be able to play a part of the game sooner? Or is it still really the, you got to have a half a million, a million followers to get any street cred? Well, it totally depends. I mean, 
I use this example a lot when I'm talking to clients, which is I love yoga and I, I love this one yoga studio called Hot 8 Yoga here in LA. And yeah. there's a teacher of one of these Hot 8 classes. And I guess I won't say her name because who knows if she wants to be talked about. But she has a massively dedicated follow. People wait in line. They line up for, you know, they sign up weeks in advance. They wake up in, at midnight to make sure they're in her class like a week from the time they're signing up. People will do whatever she says, right? Okay. So in LA, she's a real force, at least in the area that she's in. And if you are looking for an influencer to sell a wellness product, for example, and see it yeah. in Los Angeles, yeah. this would be the perfect person to go with, right? But she's got like a thousand followers. Okay. She's got like, you know, I think maybe like 2,000 followers, right? Whereas there's a bunch of other people out there who are, you know, yoga influencers. Probably almost all of them have yeah. bought at least 10,000 followers, right? But even if they have authentic followers, you know, they're up at 50, 60, 100, 250. And brands are obviously attracted okay. to the higher number of people, even though a yeah. lot of those people don't convert at all because they're, you know, really have actual followings. You know, they're kind of these fluffy, either it's phony or they have one of these programs. So I don't know if you're familiar with Instamacro, which is a program that basically gets onto your account and goes and likes all the posts of a certain hashtag that you put on there. So basically it's like tapping a million shoulders. So when you do that, you get a bunch of followers because they're like, oh, I'm in the yoga. Look, this person's liking my stuff. So I'm going to go like her feed. So what I'm saying is, Again, it's very weird. Nobody's really sure what means anything. But I do know that brands are waking up a lot to the emptiness of the pure follower number. I think they're all kind of being like, okay, well, all right. Sure. You know, there's, these people are a dime a dozen. So does your yoga instructor example versus the uh, 75,000, 100,000 plus that don't have that same credentials, is the yoga instructor you talked about, is that person kind of on their way up and they've got 2,000 followers now, but they're going to crest 100,000 in no time and therefore be that viable resource for the brand? Or is that just not where he or she is at and they're going to always cruise below 5,000 and therefore never become a part of the influencer market? I would say definitely the latter. You know, some people play the game, some people don't. Yeah. And she just doesn't play that game. You know what I mean? She she shares yoga content, but as YouTubers say, really the key to becoming an influencer is frequency of content. You know, you have to keep posting all the time. Yeah. And she definitely doesn't post all the time in that way. And she's also just not playing the game. You know, she's not doing the hashtag. She's She's too busy being awesome. Right, exactly. She's too busy actually being an influencer, you know, instead of, instead yeah. of being sort of the pretend, the pretend version of an influencer. Yeah. But that kind of implicate maybe where this whole thing is headed, which is, you know, and maybe the way to look at influencers are not as people, but as channels. And maybe what Instagram is, or what any of these platforms are, are basically cable TV, you know, and what an influencer is, is one of a million channels through which to get content. So the proprietor of that channel maybe ultimately isn't even really an individual. They're just trafficking in a certain aesthetic where people who enjoy a certain type of content can find that content. 
this is not always true. There's a lot of influencers who are followed entirely because of their personality and because of who they are, right? I mean, there's a lot of people like that. But below those really well-known names, there is so many sort of clones based on different verticals. And what I mean by that is if you're searching for a female lifestyle influencer in Nashville, you will find probably 20 or 30 people with, you know, maybe 100 to 250K followers that have almost identical aesthetic. You know, it'll be kind of like backyard sort of rustic dinner stuff. And then, oh, I'm at this same landmark wearing this similar outfit. There's actually a cool account on Instagram that I can't really remember the name right now, but it'll be a collage of like 20 photos and they're all the exact same photo. So it'll be like a travel influencer in a lit up tent with the Northern lights above them. And every single travel influencer of a certain type will have that exact same photo of their feed, but it'll be their own version of it, right? So to return to the Nashville example, this is a real example. That's why I'm saying that. When I was actually looking for that for a client, I was so surprised that there was like 10 or 20 almost identical accounts that were the same like female Nashville lifestyle influencer. I guess maybe how it will ultimately go is maybe all of those things will conglomerate into sort of one channel. And then the creators will be maybe more like the yoga teacher who are kind of the people really doing the thing in wherever that is that that are actually really living that life. And then the influencers will be more of sort of the delivery mechanism for that type of content. Yeah. Makes sense. And it's almost like you're shifting away from the individual personality and you're more getting into the idea of sponsoring a lifestyle. Exactly. Yes. That's that's interesting. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, from a brand perspective, accessing a certain audience that is attracted to that lifestyle. And then, and then we just return to traditional media buying, which is, Oh, yeah. you know, what is the media strategist? Oh, I want to get people who are interested in football. Where do you buy? Oh, you buy on ESPN, you buy on blah, blah. And this will be, you know, it's the same thing vertical wise on Instagram yeah. and influencers. Yeah. That's interesting. That's fascinating. Cause I mean, we know this stuff works, right? We know sponsorship marketing works. We know, I mean, there's a lot of great theories in marketing when you're looking to measure this stuff around the halo effect. And I mean, all marketing is aspirational lifestyle stuff. And it's why you have Matthew McConaughey driving a Lincoln. And there's this idea that Lincoln believes, you know, he's an aspirational kind of person. We want to be like him. And therefore, we want to do the things that he does so we can be more of who we think is going to be our ideal self. And this speaks to that very specifically. And we've got a lot of traditional stuff. I mean, there's like the Davy Brown Index gives us stuff on, I think it's just below 3,000 celebrities about quantifying their ability to influence brand affinity or quantifying their ability to drive consumer purchase intent. I wonder if the stuff you're talking about of like kind of the smaller influencers looking at that more as a channel, if that's starting to make it accessible. I'm really enjoying this conversation with Isaac. I hope you are also. Don't miss part two coming out next week. You know, we're going to get into the four goals that every campaign has and how you measure those and how's that, how that relates to 
to influencer marketing and really get into this idea of, of split testing and, and how is influencer marketing different or the same when it comes to measuring your marketing for the purposes of getting progressively better. So what a cool conversation. I'm going to say visit thefutureparty.com, check out that newsletter. It's good stuff. And if you're not a subscriber of Demystifying Data, go ahead and subscribe today. We'd love to make sure we get you into the fold and, and you have the chance to get updates. And, you know, I hope you're finding value with all this. I hope you're having a fantastic day. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. Tune in next time as Chris Clegg continues Demystifying Data. Meantime, head over to demystifyingdata.co to learn more.